I'm Stuart Buchanan, and you're listening to Out From Under, a weekly program which winds a path through eclectic and experimental Australian music, broadcast on Resonance Extra and podcast by FBI Radio in Sydney. Brett Thompson has been the guiding force in the band Rand and Holland since its inception nearly 15 years ago. Their debut record, Tomorrow Will Be Like Today, was released on Australian label Preservation, and licensed in Europe through Staugold, and was rightly feted as a set of uniquely deconstructed and experimental folk recordings, albeit rife with melody and a quiet undercurrent of pop. Their next record, Caravans, took the band on a trajectory that was more deliberately polished, and the acclaim escalated as a result, drawing comparisons to Nick Drake and M. Ward, but it was the kind of acclaim and categorization that didn't necessarily sit comfortable with Brett. So much so that there was no follow-up record, nothing to capitalize on the success. In fact, there was the complete opposite, silence. The band emerged four years later for a short series of intense live shows, polarizing audiences with a radically different, darker sound. But no sooner had the applause from those shows died down than the band announced they were splitting. And the album that they had recorded before the shows was not to see the light of day. But the story didn't end there. Pole Vault forward another four years to 2015 and the lost recording was finally released on the Room 40 offshoot label, A Guide to Saints. The reviews described the fabled record as apocalyptic or as the sound of a band imploding and, quote, as blurring the boundaries of folk, metal and drone. I had caused to meet Brett for the first time recently and asked him if he'd like to be interviewed for the programme. He'd given no interviews for the album release, nor indeed for many years prior, but I could tell he was keen to set the record straight. And, as it transpired, he was also keen to share the news that Rand and Holland were by no means finished. Rumours of their death had been, in fact, greatly exaggerated. There is, in fact, another act to follow. In this episode of Out From Under, I talked to Brett about the background to the recording of the self-titled album and how the past informs a future, and also ask him to step through the album track by track to reveal a little of its dark secrets. This is Rand and Holland on Out From Under. I'm Brett and I'm Rand and Holland. Ren and Holland is a started as a solo project um, many many years ago now, and I guess it sort of morphed into a band. There has been, a, I guess, noted over the last couple of times that um, you've either had releases or sort of appeared, you know, for whatever reason in, in the press and online that Ren and Holland had disbanded. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, has it disbanded? That's a good question. Uh don't know i'm still writing i'm still writing in, in terms of i'd like to probably record again and and perform again i think probably in the form it was is no more but you know in terms of the people that were involved we're still talking and i'd say that probably most of them would be involved 
Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the most recent release, the self-titled release, which came out on A Guide to Saints, the, yep. the Room 40 uh, cassette label. Yeah. That was, I guess that was listed or, or noted and, and even, you know, through A Guide to Saints itself as being the final recording. So you'd obviously at some point decided this was it, that it was finished as such, or did you? Oh, it's just good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> look, it just, yeah, I mean, look, we did disband um, after that recording. I think it was so intense um, leading up to that point that uh, that we stopped functioning as a as a group. And after that, I had a lot of difficulty getting released. And, you know, I started a family and, and whatnot. So it was very much in the, in the background anyway. I mean, look, we, we basically rehearsed for a year to then record that one album and I knew the, the personalities that were involved that that at some point it would implode and it was like like a Lars von Trier experiment or something <laughs> and I, yeah I guess towards the end we just all had enough and that was it but we got a good recording out of it why do you think that it, that it would have imported like what are the tensions there you know that 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 particularly when you you know rehearse and record for a year do a couple of shows and and right at that point where it's kind of here as a body of work that's ready to release and tour to then say no nah, pull the shutters oh, things changed and well, things do change uh, you know in terms of how we i mean I, I tend to write slowly and when i sort of have a particular thing in mind you know the group itself i knew was going to be uh, was going to work really well for the recording. Um, it was fantastic. We did about four live shows, which were pretty amazing. Mm. Um, I think prior to that, in terms of doing the last album, the Caravans album, a lot of it's always been done in a sort of re- rehearsed and, and uh, recorded um, with the purpose of the album in mind, and then we go and play live. Mm. Um, and after playing all the shows of the Caravans, we did play a lot live, but, uh, you know... This was kind of the antithesis to that sort of folk mm. guitar. And in a way, Caravans was almost... It seems like now it's a, like an anomaly to, to what mm. what sort of not came before, like in the, much in my past and, and what it became. Um, yeah, I was probably too self-conscious of the zeitgeist at the time, which is my, what my therapist said afterwards. He said, yeah, you can't predict the zeitgeist, Brett. was when you read the reviews now I mean it was very zeitgeisty right mm. in, in the sense that it did well by any standards right yeah but you know it was certainly reviewed in, in, and talked about with a lot of balls drawn towards a lot of other performers like M. Ward and so on that were yeah. sort of very um, you know on trend quote unquote at the time 
the record that followed, which is, I guess, recorded in 2011, was it? 2010? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And came out last year. Yeah. Um, is the antithesis. I mean, it's a complete. It's like a completely different band in some cases. Yep. Although I can hear um, remnants of the first record of Tomorrow Will Be Like Today. Like yep. it feels like there's a bridge back to that. Yes. To the sparseness and yep. you know, it's, it's a bit more pared back. At what point did you realize? Maybe it was when you were in therapy, talking to your therapist, that um, you know the caravans was, you know, not the direction you wanted to pursue. Uh, I taught myself to play guitar for that album, or more so, so we came up with a lot of the styles in terms of writing for that, you know, the two of us, Stuart and myself, really, um, you know, exploring the guitars, the two sounds, so it was a different style of writing, Uh, but, you know, my background, I I played in, like, I used to play metal and stuff, so to do pop music, yeah, it was probably, like, the first introduction to that, so that's why a lot of it was very obviously sort of pop in parts, you know, I was probably feeling a lot more positive um, so in terms of like the last record it is probably a very true in- interpretation of what I would do combining past and sort of that middle ground does that make sense? Was there a point though that you kind of you had that realisation though you know I mean or was it a sort of gradual process? I think you know it was playing live shows to you know in pubs playing indie indies, you know like guitar folky stuff it was you know I wanted to do something a lot more sort of and it wasn't didn't pull off the sort of the, the pop the indie pop thing well it was always the shows where the two of us were probably playing a small room somewhere and that was more a true indication of what we we were about so you know I just wanted to move away from that for sure I wanted to play something louder and I guess probably seeing Swans and what was it about Swans that sort of imbued itself in your thinking I was loud for starters uh, you know, but how they'd evolved because when I, you know, as a teenager, I was in my early twenties, I was really into Swans. You know, I was a worship Swans and Godflesh and and Big Black and all those sort of bands when I was doing uh, this thing called Public Hanging and and how, you know, as Michael Girard, um has evolved from doing the Swans and doing Angels of Light and then coming back sort of full circle to the noise thing and what um, I was like, it can be done. <laughs> well, it was even that sort of I remember a sort of major label pop moment of Swans The Burning mm. World yeah, yeah where they covered Love Will Tears Apart and yeah. there was a push to try and make them much more um, accessible apparently um, hated it Bill yeah. did that yeah yeah he sort of rejected it at that point mm. so there's definitely there's a, there's a symmetry there perhaps even with you know what, well do you reject Caravans or is it just more of a kind of like no I just let it be where it is yeah let it be yeah. it's still an enjoyable album yeah you know there's a couple of songs I really like on it I think a lot of the stuff we just we're never going to pull off as a live band, but I still enjoy it. I mean, it's is what it is. Um, like anything you do, I mean, you sort of do it and then you move on. Um, a lot of people enjoy that record, but uh, you know, for I guess everything you do is, I probably have a soft spot for the first album, but the last one, hey, it's a for me it was about sort of creating a some art, I guess. You know, I I, I wanted to polarize people in a way. I knew that people would either really love it or they just wouldn't want to know about it. And that's why it took so hard, so long to release it. Mm. You know, I'd sort of had it sitting there and I was like, well, I gave it to a few labels. And mm. especially now in this day and age, um, you know, it's for a record label to take a risk on something that they know is probably going to sell 150 copies. Um, it's like, well, we, you know, it's interesting, but we can't really justify doing it. I just didn't really have the means or the... Um, 
well, not how to do to release it myself. So that's. So how did the hookup with Lawrence in Room Forty come around? Well, I obsessed with uh, mastering it about five or six times. That's generally what I do with every single release. Right. Is uh, it got mastered initially overseas and then remastered again? I still wasn't happy, and um, I really liked the Angel Eyes record that uh, Lawrence did. And I mean, I was aware of his work as, a, as an artist, but, but that album just blew me away and that's how I got in touch with him. Um, and so had you initially asked Lawrence to master it or to release it? Or no, I asked him to master it. Right. And I was like, well, by, by the way, <laughs> if like yeah, if you like it. And um, yeah, he came to the party, so... Stuart Buchanan and I'm talking to Brett Thompson from Rand and Holland about their 2015 self-titled album. So I pulled a couple of quotes right from reviews okay. for the record. <laughs> I just want to read them out and just see what you think. Right? Um, so the first one is uh, the finest hour of Rand and Holland is revealed. And your finest hour? Well you know yeah. I mean you're always working towards it aren't you? 
I think you're always working towards something being your finest work. Um, you know, I think it was like, if I can do three albums, that's sort of a legacy, you know. So after this one, I was like, well, this one's, you know, there's like three different records, and I think this one here is really just embodies everything about what I could probably say. Mm. Um, and if I keep going after that, then it's just, you know, who knows where it's going to go, but mm. I'm pretty happy with, comfortable with how it sort of ended, how it came out, yeah. Well, the next quote is uh, that it's a grim tombstone, <laughs> which I thought was a really, uh, really interesting uh, one. The kind of tombstone analogy, and and you know, but also you know, the, there's a grimness to it, particularly in light with against Caramelands, which is the opposite. Look, I don't. Yeah, what was I thinking? <laughs> Did you, does it feel grim? Do you think it's grim? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, yeah, look, you know, I wanted it to be, I guess I was, you know, like a horror. I wanted to sound like a, a, someone taking a chair and just smashing it through a window, that it was explosive. And, um, you know, as we said, the antithesis of the sort of pop guitar, I wanted it to be, uh, you know, intense and uh, almost like a, a soundtrack without being pretentious, like just a... You know, something that would make you feel sort of uncomfortable, and mm. and you're aware of what's happening around you, especially in the in the um, the track "Old Crow" when it gets into that sort of drone, mm. and it's about you know when you're sitting listening to it, and you become very aware of what's happening outside mm. it. You know, initially I was going to put you know crow samples and and whatnot in, but I thought it was too obvious. Mm. But when you're actually there and you and you're listening, you do hear what's going on, mm. and yeah, and it's certainly you know what. It, one of the things that stands out is its sort of unexpectedness. You know, you, you actually have uh, very soon into the first side of the record that you realise, actually, I have no idea where this is going to go mm-hmm. because there's a, there's, there's, there seems to be, you know, so much, uh, not so much diversion, but just elements and sounds that are so unexpected. Um, and that's part of the joy of listening to it. Yep. That, um, you know, and particularly when you get to, you know, as you say, towards you know, side B where the second half of the work and the drone kicks in. No. <laughs> um, yeah, look, you know, I, I, I guess we, like, as I said, we, we, we would rehearse um, and time, you know, because I was working full time. So we'd, so we'd get together on like on a Friday night and it, there would be this sort of block of, of two hours or something that would, you know, so we're very structured and, and we'd rehearse and, and get the songs to a point where they, they're workable. And then once we recorded, we record them as a band and a lot of stuff was done. Afterwards, um, I went to Tasmania to, to mix it with Chris Town, and, and um, you know that's an interesting story in itself because it, you know his backyard's full of paddy melons, and he has his he, he has a sort of a rustic couple of rustic shacks where um, you know when the soldiers came back from the Second World War, you know obviously these these men were pretty broken, and so they were given these fruit pickers huts, I think by SPC. Um, so he because that was sort of what they were capable of doing, um, and. You know, so he's got a couple of shacks and they're converted into, you know, the ones converted into a studio. So a lot of the stuff was done right up until the end. I was doing vocals and we were doing overdubs and everything that we'd done previously in Sydney. And then, you know, so it was one of those records that just we were squeezing everything out of it right till the final point. The other quote, the last quote I wanted to mention was the ultimate sit alone and feel anxious record. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So that's in the description of it. So can you talk to it? So the ultimate sit alone and feel anxious. 
Well, I guess it's that sort of the yeah the, the creepiness of it, and there were some tracks that were left off. Only only a couple that I knew that weren't necessarily going to work. But from that first track going right through to through to the end, it's it is that sort of going through the journey, mm. I guess. Um, and I yeah I watch a lot of films and and whatnot, so it's always in the in the probably in the back of my mind how something might work if it's sort of got visuals as well. So it's like switching that off and just listening and and being, as I said, aware of what, what else is going around. Mm. Probably musically, I was listening to a lot of, um, you know, like Italian horror and that kind of stuff at the time. Yeah. Um, that was a pretty big thing. Did you at that point when the record came out, had you sort of thought that you would still continue or is that something that's happened more, more laterally or <coughs> what's your, your it needed time. It needed time. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that maybe it would give people the opportunity to listen to it, to discover it and then, um, yeah, it just needed time. Yeah, I think we'll get there. I did, I, I did a couple of uh, solo shows, which I'd never done before. Mm. Um, perhaps, perhaps I'll do that again. I'm not sure. Um, and that was always about sort of being comfortable working in either as a duo or an ensemble. So I was getting used to that and, mm. and knowing that I could do that. But yeah, so I think it was just getting the space, space between it. And yeah, I mean, how do you frame the kind of work that you're doing now? I mean, I realise it might be at a kind of very early sort of draft stage, but, you know, how do you frame it, particularly in relation to the most recent record? More guitar, but also the way I've always done a lot of the Rand Holland stuff is, is to work with you know that huge arsenal of gear in there and the keyboards and probably start with a reference point and then strip it away. So I often start with some of the clunky old drum machines and um, keyboards I've got. And I mean, even on the last record, there was a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, the one with the drum machine, for example, where we, yeah. you know, a lot of that was just it was just basically drums. We we, we mic'd up the drum machine into the into the live room and and. and got it actually put the speakers around the drum kit so the the drum machine was triggering the drum kit and Stu was playing that right so and then you know and then we put a lot of shit on afterwards as well so yeah look you know it just depends I'd, 
sometimes you it just you go to the most obvious so when you're writing it's it's often good to move away from what is the most obvious thing you do and that's picking up a guitar mm. and for me it's like well yeah you need to make yourself uncomfortable sometimes to really mm. write good stuff i think and just picking up a guitar it's like yeah you've been there before So, so let's do a, let's do a track by track of the record, starting with side one, track mm-hmm. number one, uh, Cobra. Okay, so this uh, we played this. Stu and I played this as a duo, and it's, it's sort of only uh, could ever really be played with the two of us, I think. Um, and we've been playing for that for probably a number of years before we actually finally recorded it. So I think it's a good version of it. And this is where we're doing a lot of stuff with just the two of us with guitars, and, and Stu was sitting down with a with the, uh, the kick drum um, yeah it's I like how the guitars well I love how the guitars sort of interweave and that was one of the things that we think we, we do really well that we that we do well together um, it's just sort of the I guess the, the harmonies of the guitars and what's happening in between the, those sort of clunky notes um, yeah we laid a little bit bit of percussion over the top of it afterwards but that's pretty much where all the you know that was the track in itself Thank you. 
Um, the next track, track two, is uh, Walking the Plank. That's probably almost a throwback for the first album, where I played a lot of the, a lot of the songs are written on bass, and there's only a few on, on, on the second one that I wrote on bass. I've always played bass, like in my early, you know, early bands and stuff. I was always a bass player, um, but I found it quite limiting. But it's a really good, it's great to, to write on the bass. Um, so that's where that started, and the drum machine and whatnot came after that. You know, I wanted it to be melodramatic, so that's why it has that kind of the sparseness and the vocal, and the you know the, the lyrics are, are pretty tongue in cheek, and I think that's a lot of the things I was conscious of too with with this with the album. This album was having a little bit of sort of humour and all black humour in the in the lyrics, um, which is probably a side I hadn't explored so much before. You know, I think some of the stuff's pretty funny. I mean, especially that track because it's pretty over the top. With the sort of the, the sort of hammy sort of Phil Collins style, you know, um, and yeah, look, I love the voodoo stuff as well. There was a lot of those things that we, you know, especially we're doing in Tasmania, um, sort of building that up, and a lot of that sort of psycho keyboard stuff was done afterwards. So yeah, no, I, I, I dig that track. You mentioned there, I guess, the kind of uh, the humour element. Is 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 there any sense in your mind that you were like too serious before, or? Have you ever charged yourself with being too serious, do you think? Oh, probably sometimes too earnest. I mean, but that's also, you know, I'm not a skilled lyric writer. That's never, I've never been a songwriter. Like, in the sense of, you know, I'm not a singer-songwriter. That's not how I've, that's not, it's not how I've done it. You know, I've always worked with sort of playing a, with a band in my own ensemble or trying to write for it. I can, I can hear the limitations with some of the, the earlier stuff when you try to strip it back and just play it. Just with guitar, it's like, oh, well, there's a verse and a chorus and <laughs> not much else. Right. But it kind of works when you've got yeah. a band. But I'm probably more conscious now of writing, um, trying to write songs. Um, yeah, and look, you know, and that just evolves too. Yeah. Trying to get better as a, as a writer. But, you know, some people really have great, have great lyrics and their music's shitty. So, um, yeah, I guess it's just finding a middle ground.
from under i'm Stuart buchanan talking to brett thompson from the band rand and holland who's walking us through a track by track commentary of their most recent self-titled album released through the australian cassette label a guide to saints and so the next track is the plague yeah so that, that's a song that's written definitely written on guitar um and that's one of those ones i can play all the way through very folk mm-hmm. but um trying to be you know it was very I guess as psychedelic and as possible with the, with the strings and whatnot. Yeah, that was a good one. That was a, like there was a definite band song as well. I think that was a, one that we got um, right as a band and was performed as a band. Yeah. Um, and then all the stuff, all the other stuff was 
it's kind of laid on top. You mentioned earlier, and certainly, you know, some of the um, the few reviews at the, of the live shows that came off the back of the recording of the record, so like 2011, whenever that was, um, were exemplary. I mean, people seem to think that that, that live incarnation at that time was uh, yeah. was extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, it was a really good band. Um, good band live too. That was the one where I just, yeah, we'd, it sort of self-destructs at the end and um, just sort of has this power, you know, with the bass and, and whatnot. And again, uh, we sort of kept the sets fairly short in terms of the songs that we performed, mm. but we did a lot of build-up with some of the sort of droney stuff would start with maybe start with Old Crow or, or start with sort of a keyboard drone and then, then build 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 up to and I was playing a lot of the percussion stuff as well so some of those elements weren't quite captured in, in on the album there were a few bits and pieces that, we left, that I left off that I think mm. disappeared forever now but um, mm. you know so there was sort of that yeah, I mean it, it influenced it throughout it My Halo, the next track. Oh yeah, four. yeah, okay. Uh, that was done at home. It was meant to be a really soft synth song that had synth and, and bass and that was it. And you know, the four track recording or whatever I've got is very, very different. Yep, the one is of modern technology. I think we basically just distorted the hell out of it and you know, the end where it slows down. So that turned out very differently to what was originally expected, but that, you know, You've always got to take risks and try new things, mm. for sure. You know, that's from the minute you start something to the minute it's actually released and people listening to it, you, you can't, you've got to just be open to anything. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I'm really happy with the way, the way that turned out. fifth and final track is the the opus i guess that yeah. is there's old crow and on the cassette um that takes up the full second side it's like 23 yeah. minutes or something like that so that's a um and that is you know by far and away the most uh certainly to date like unlike the work that you'd released previously i mean that so what was the sort of thinking behind 
making a piece of that not just duration but that kind of epic um, journey I suppose across that yeah look we probably have lots and lots of versions of that somewhere recordings of, of that track or especially the the ending with different interpretations of it but um was that always a sort of long yeah, piece? yeah yeah i mean there's a build-up there's a whole build-up to that that we tried to record but and we did live that didn't quite get there mm. um and then of course there's the song section and then the, the, the middle section mm. um which again was quite different when we did it as a band because it's just more the, the bass the drums and the, the two guitars but we, mm. we played a lot of stuff um with the, the strings and a lot of the stuff like the keyboards when we were mixing um, but the ending, and especially when we play it live, it's it's one take. Mm. Yeah. So, and I think we did maybe two takes of the ending. Right. Played live, so you know it's pretty grueling. Mm. <laughs> and then obviously studio, a bit of studio trickery there, with editing editing it together. Just um, but it's really just a key change between the sort of the middle section and the end section. But yeah, yeah. you can hear it too because it's I mean it's slow down obviously, but. Um, you know, that you can hear that the hits and sometimes they're a little bit off. Um, yeah, it's fun to perform that. And is there a kind of narrative or a story behind that, behind Old Crow? I mean, Originally it was going to be about, it's pretty dark, about a mother who drives her children into a lake. That's a true story. That's dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I actually went with that. Right. But there's a little bit of that symbolism, I guess, in the, you yeah. know, watching the water whatnot. Um, and so when you sort of now sort of reflect back on that body of work, um, are there particular um, tracks uh, or moments that are now sort of part of your tra- trajectory? It's just going to get darker and more psych. That, Absolutely. That's cool. Yeah. Um, you know, it just for me, it's a real challenge to write pop stuff because it's very easy for me to, to just go dark. It's what I probably feel more, most comfortable doing. Yeah. Um, that's why I was saying, like, when Caravans was, you know, I was like, geez, <laughs> I'm not really the... I'm not this happy. Yeah. So, yeah, we'll see how we go in another four years. Another evil.
That's Rand and Holland and the track Old Crow, taken from their 2015 self-titled album, available through the Australian label A Guide to Saints. Info at aguidetosaints.com. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Out From Under. More details about the show can be found on our website at outfromunderradio.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as Out From Under Radio. And we're also on email, outfromunderradio at gmail.com. I'm Stuart Buchanan. I'll be back around again next week for another episode of Out From Under. <laughs>